0: And welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Caroline Leafers, and it's my pleasure to be talking with Natalie Wright and Liz Jackson. Natalie and Liz, thank you both so much for joining me today. I usually introduce my guests, but I was finding it really hard <laughs> to summarize all that both of you do. So I'm going to pass the work on to you and make you introduce yourselves. So can you each just tell me or tell our audience a little bit about yourselves?
1: My name is Liz Jackson. I am a disability advocate turned, I guess, design strategist. At this point, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to try and articulate. Um, I'm the founder of an organization called the Disabled List. Um, I work with Alex Hagard, uh, who is also based in Canada. And what we do is we engage in disability as a creative practice. And so, Instead of saying disability is something that needs to be smoothed out or fixed, uh, we just kind of wonder how can you engage creatively with it. Um, and through the Disabled List, um, we operate a website called Critical Access, which is um, it's a, a repository and a database of disability representation in media. I have a feeling we might get into some of this stuff later. Um, but yeah, you know, I just. Um, I'm always kind of looking for fun and interesting projects in the disability space around, uh, you know, design and media and,
2: and that's really why we're here today.
0: Excellent. Thanks. What about you, Natalie?
2: Um, well, I just first wanted to um, thank you, Caroline, for the opportunity to be on the uh, Disability History Association podcast. It's been such an incredible resource for me and I'm so grateful to you and others who run the Disability History Association. Um, like you, I'm also Canadian. Um, I grew up uh, half in Ottawa and half in London, England. Um, I attended the University of Toronto for my BA and then went on to um, do my master's at uh, the tour Program in American Material Culture. And then after that, I, I had this really great experience um, as a curatorial fellow at the Chipstone Foundation in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, which apart from having a really incredible uh, collection of early American furniture and uh, British ceramics is also this incubator um, of of new ideas in the the museum and curatorial world. Um, And then um, from there, I uh, just started last September a PhD program in design history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I'm very happy to be a student again.
0: Naturally, I always sort of drift to the question, how did you get interested in disability, or in this case, maybe the intersections between disability and design? So
1: I, you know, I, it's interesting, as I get more and more into this space, I work very hard to kind of uh, avoid my origin story, but I figure this is a safe disability space, so uh, I don't mind. Um, I got sick on March 30th of 2012, when I got out of the hospital, I needed eyeglasses and a cane. And so for me, the question became why I had so much choice with my eyeglasses, but none with my cane. And that was, and I think it really is the existential question that's really come to kind of define my life. Um, because for me, it's a question about when you can and can't choose your identity and what are the factors at play, um, that may prevent you from having full autonomy over, um, the way your body and mind are perceived in the world. And so, yeah, so uh, it's been, uh, in a couple of weeks, so it'll have been eight years that I've been um, engaged uh, rigorously um, and, in this area and um, love it. Thank you.
0: What about you, Natalie? Um,
2: well, uh, I think for as long as I can remember, I was always really interested in working with objects and artifacts um, and have worked in museums um, since I was in high school. I think I even wrote a lot of my high school essays about displays that I saw. So I've always been a really big um, museum uh, nerd, um, and I've always been really drawn to this field of material culture studies and the power of objects as historical sources. Um, and I think for uh, during both my undergrad and master's degrees, I would say that I wrote a lot about Connections between the material world and the body, um, but that I didn't necessarily relate that to disability studies, um, which now I find funny um, because my brother has cerebral palsy and being part of the disability family community has shaped me so much. Um, but so it was at when I was at the Chipstone Foundation that I first began really focusing on disability in my research and um, curatorial work. Um, and that prompted me to look back and see that a lot of my previous work uh, was actually about disability. Um, and then that kind of revelation, uh, or at least it felt revelatory, um, pushed me back to to or to apply um, to go back to school um, because I felt like I really wanted to um, work within this framework and, and in order to do that I, I needed some of the theoretical scaffolding. Um, but I will say that it's, it's also been interesting, I think, to um, consider that um, my work is now being um, thought of as uh, within, like, histories of design. And um, I'm in a, I mean, I'm in a design history program, but I was previously working within um, material culture methodologies or studying the decorative arts. Um, and so, and I feel like now that I'm working on disability, it's... it's talked about more in the realm of design so I'm still sort of understanding that shift of sort of what it means to be working in the in the field of disability design. Mm
0: -hmm. There's so many things that I'd love to talk to both of you about but I of course want to just hone right in on the thing that you two collaborated on most recently which is this exhibit that you have on display at the Milwaukee Art Museum called Functional Fashions. What's functional fashions? Tell me about this line of clothing that you have on display. So what I
2: always try and get across to people um, on a basic level that is that I think functional fashions was this really incredible moment in disability fashion history. So if people take anything away, it's that, uh, it's, it's that for me at least. Um, It started uh, at Dr. Howard Rusk's Institute for Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, um, which I know listeners will have um, uh, heard about in in some of the other episodes, um, which he established um, after World War II in order to apply rehabilitation practices that he used with veterans, um, but instead on uh, American civilians at the Institute. Um, So the designer Helen Cookman spent um, a three-year research residency at the Institute between around 1952 to 1955 to look into um, what they called clothing problems of the handicapped. And this intersection of uh, rehabilitation in Cookman's career is really interesting to me um, because Cookman was already in her 60s at that point. And she had uh, she had established herself as a as a creator of workwear. Um, this is, I think, what she's best known for now. And a lot of her uniforms are at the Metropolitan Museum's Costume Institute. Um, and one of the main goals for rehabilitation at that time, um, in my understanding, was employment. Um, and even the funding for Cookman's research came from the U.S. Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. So it was this goal of imagining what patients could uh, wear to work after they left the institute that um, Cookman collaborated uh, with an occupational therapist on both um, a pilot line of clothing and this incredible 80-page 80, 80 uh, book called Functional Fashions for the Physically Handicapped. Um, and um, so I think that um, with her background um, in workwear, she was sort of uniquely qualified um, to do this. And um, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about the line, but I would also love for Liz to um, to talk about some of the other reasons that uh, that Cookman was really um, the just a perfect choice um, for this line. Um, so her pilot line included both menswear and womenswear. Um, interestingly, not children's wear. Um,
1: but well, not until later. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Um, and that uh, so it, it included um, like trousers with zippers down each side and an interior belt um, that would that would hold them up. As well as women's jackets with reinforced underarms for crutch users, and um, what they called action pleats, uh, and I love that word, um, that allowed um, sort of greater arm and shoulder movement uh, for the for the wearer. Um, What happened next, I think, is a little bit uncertain. Um, Newspaper reports say that between like thirty thousand. 30,000 and 50,000 individuals and organizations wrote in to request information on the line. Um, But neither Liz uh, nor I have found any of this correspondence, Um, which certainly means, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen certainly, but um, we could maybe generalize to say that there was widespread excitement uh, about the line and its availability. So at that point, I think Cookman firmly believed that designing accessible and beautiful clothes uh, filled a need and and really also presented a a business opportunity. Um, So then she approached uh, the New York Times style editor, Virginia Pope, and together they founded this nonprofit uh, organization called the Clothing Research and Development Foundation to run functional fashions. and then they did something really interesting, I think. Um, they expanded the line not only by creating a mail order catalog for Cookman's designs, but they also approached other designers to incorporate Cookman's construction features into their own into their own pieces, um, as well as identifying pieces that they already deemed functional that were on the market. So it was sort of like a three-pronged approach. Um, and then they identified all of those garments by adding um, a functional fashions tag. Um, so between 1955 to 1976, um, uh, uh, we found at least um, 30 designers who contributed to the line, um, and they ranged from higher-end sportswear labels like um, Pauline Trigier and Vera Maxwell, um, and even one of the designers for Lacoste. Um, to everyday brands like Levi's that, that we still um, recognize today. Um, and they also show the New York Fashion Week. I haven't found images or, or uh, videos of that, but I'm hoping, hoping to at some point. Um, and the board of their nonprofit um, became um, quite large uh, and, and had... Um, I would say, important people in in the industry, um, including the chairman of Bergdorf Goodman. Um, But again, so another thing that was really interesting was that despite all of this and many of their successes, um, I would say that their main challenge was getting the clothing to be stocked in department stores. Um, At one point in time, uh, functional fashions was going to be featured in the Sears Roebuck catalog. Um, but it uh, in the end, it only received sort of a small write-up with, uh, with no images and it was in the medical supply section. Um, and so I think I just think that example is so poignant because their one of their goals was really to disseminate these pieces as fashion. Um, and I think that they, uh, despite all of their best efforts, um, had difficulty with that. Um, yeah, Liz, did you want to um, say say more about um, about the history of the line and challenge and them?
1: Yeah, I think um, for uh, for me to kind of um, elaborate on um, why you know I'm involved and why this was so particularly interesting to me, um, I think we need to kind of hone in on the relationship between. Uh, Helen Cookman and this woman named Virginia Pope, who Natalie said was the uh, fashion stylist for the New York times. Um, So the interesting thing is, is when Howard Rusk decided that he wanted to, um, to create these, these um, garments, right? What the moment that he did that, he didn't reach out to Helen Cookman, right? The, the person that he reached out to was Virginia Pope, right? The New York times. And the, as soon as he reached out to Virginia Pope, the interesting thing was, is Virginia said, oh, you need to talk to Helen Cookman, right? Mm-hmm. And so why did Virginia think that Howard Rusk needed to talk to Helen Cookman? Well, if you look at Helen's background, as Natalie said, right, she had this, this, this history of developing these garments uh, in the 1930s or so uh, that were wildly functional. Um, but the thing, and this is really, I think, to me, the key point is, is that Um, as the 1940s and 1950s rolled around, she had begun to age into disability, so she had started losing her hearing. And so uh, what happened was, is um, Helen would design garments, uh, because at the time, hearing aids had these big batteries that resided along the waist, and so Helen started designing her own garments that would incorporate the hearing aid battery, you know, into the outfit. And so for me, the thing that I'm so interested in is, I think, that Helen, because of that, became the obvious choice to Virginia Pope and that's how she ended up in this situation. And so the fact that Virginia's logic was to, to turn to Helen is um, something I wish I could better understand. I don't necessarily think that's something that brands do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think brands tend to turn to non-disabled saviors. So why was that Virginia's instinct? Um, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out.
0: Why did you think it was important to put this collection on display? I think
2: what we uh, what Liz and I both found um, was that there are so many news articles that that many of us have encountered that that uh, repeat a very similar narrative that um, that clothing um, for disabled individuals um, has never existed before um, that it's this very large market that uh, that fashion, that the fashion industry has not tapped into, um, and that uh, that basically this uh, this history does not exist um, if we were reading between the lines, and um, and so it was on a on a basic level it was um, it was important uh, for us to to um, to display the line in order to correct some of those assumptions. But um, as Liz said, too, you know, the the importance of of Cookman's own disability um, also gets us away from this narrative of designing for um, individuals um, and uh, instead really um, elevates uh, us to, I think, a more um, a more a more rigorous uh form of design, which is um designing by individuals and then um designing with. Yeah.
1: So that. yeah, I mean for me through this process, I've developed this this term um that I feel like is is so prevalent in disability. And it's it's sort of a playful term. I call it first person language. Um, and it's a play on person first language. So um do I need to get into person first or is this a fairly savvy audience?
0: I think it's a fairly savvy audience, but you could give a little primer just in case. You never know.
1: (laughs) Okay, so person-first language (laughs) is a person with disability. It's somebody who doesn't want to be defined by their disability. I, on the other hand, identify as a disabled person, um, and I see my power as being part of a collective whole. So, you know, there's this dynamic that's happening in disability right now where if if you use identity-first language, you might get corrected by people that use person-first language, but if you use person-first language, nobody with identity-first language is actually going to correct you. So there's just, it's just this strange back and forth. And so I saw it as an opportunity to get a little bit playful. And so the term I came up with was first-person language. And this is something that happens a lot in design, where a person makes a thing, and then the newspaper says, finally, even though the thing has existed in the disability space for eons, uh, a really good example of that is Lego came out with braille bricks. Uh, It was these uh, Legos that were Braille, um, and they they praised it as innovation, um, didn't acknowledge the fact that tactiles has been around since the 1980s, right, and this is a product of the disability community. And so for me and and for Natalie, the thing that we started seeing was is every maybe 10, 20 years, another fashion designer would come along and say, I'm the first. You know, I think the one that really stands out to us is uh, Mindy Shire of Runway of Dreams, partner with Tommy Hilfiger. She wrote an op-ed for Time Magazine um, back in 2016 and then did a talk at TED about how she was the first. And Helen clearly shows us no, right? not the first. And so this idea of first person language is just this way to kind of push back on these dynamics. Mm-hmm. And I, I do hope that this is something that Helen can allow for in the disability space is these more complex conversations about where things originate, because it is, and it is easy there. And there was a time where I said, like, Helen's the first, but she's actually not, right? Mm-hmm. Because before her were all the ways in which disabled people hacked. And so we need to kind of start accounting for that as well. And so so first-person language. I, I and Helen through Helen Cookman. I'm hoping we can start to have some of these conversations.
2: Oh. Yeah, and I would just say, add to that that um, I totally agree. And and I think what was really helpful for us was that we could use the functional fashions research and the display in order to open up a broader conversation about um, about this very long history of of dress and disability. Um, as opposed to us saying that, um, that Cookman and her collaborators were the first. Um, and it, it's been really interesting uh, to me, at least in the past um, uh, a couple of months, um, what's come up a lot is how um, individuals uh, who are working in home economics programs in, in the United States and um, in, in Canada as well, were working on um we're working on clothing designs uh, uh, for disability um you know prior to the functional fashions line um certainly on a smaller scale but um they were uh in a sense also modeling a lot of the methodologies that cookman and some of the occupational therapists were were using in terms of um, working with patients and then trying to uh, measure out a lot of their, um, a lot of their clothing problems and, and to do some of this like mathematical analyses. Um, it's really interesting to see how some of those methodologies, it seems like were, were started in a lot of these home economics programs um, and which were also engaging um, with uh, some of the vocational rehabilitation work um, that the US government was promoting.
0: Mm. Do you mind if I just um, ask? What do you mean when you say like mathematical analyses?
2: Oh, sure. They're um, in the in the book, in particular, Functional Fashions for the Physically Handicapped. That um, the end of the book goes into all of these different um, tables and graphs of um, measuring out in um, individuals' clothing problems. So um, there, are, I think that they were um, tallying uh, a lot of the different. Um, a lot of the different um, both I would say sort of complaints and then wishes for clothing yeah, interesting. Um, and then trying to measure those out so they would sort of say like well 50% of people have difficulty with socks and then um, 30% of people have difficulty with shoes and so they were trying to um, figure out what they would um, how they would approach their designs um, based on that.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Okay. Okay. So tell me how your collaboration started. How did you two end up working together on this particular functional fashions project?
1: So um, I have a friend named Lawrence Carter-Long, um, who's, uh, I'm sure a lot of your, your podcast listeners will um, know who he is. He does this thing where he goes on eBay, and he types in the word disability, and then he just like, buy shit. Like, And so I got home one day and there was a package waiting for me and I opened it up and it was the functional fashions for the physically handicapped book. And I just started kind of pouring through it and just fell in love with Helen Cookman. I was just like, who is this woman? I live in New York City. I realized that this book was created in New York. I just was determined to figure out what had happened to her. Uh, So eventually what I managed to do was track down her two grandsons. Um, And her one grandson uh, lives here in New York and uh i just reached out to him he's like why don't you come over so i went over and we we chatted for a while and he said you need to know natalie wright and i was like who is natalie and uh so there was this person at chipstone that had also reached out you would reach out to him right mm-hmm. or yeah and so it also reached out to him um and so i i don't know if i emailed or called natalie but um you know we just got on the phone one day and and
0: and just it was it was the best it was the best.
2: Yeah, um, and on, on my side of things, I um, I was working on uh, an exhibit that uh, was up at the Museum of Wisconsin Art about a uh, children's wear clothing designer named Florence Eisman. And um, this was back when Google still had uh, the um, historic newspapers feature uh, where you could search um, their digitized, uh, archive archival newspaper, uh, collection. And, um, when I typed in Florence Eisman to that feature several years ago, um, one of the first articles that came up was, uh, from the, um, Milwaukee journal Sentinel. And it was, uh, about her collaboration with Helen Cookman on functional fashions for, um, for children. And, um, so then that was sort of my research for that exhibit Um, we we put together a catalog and so my catalog essay was about that and um and then i quickly realized that Florence Eisman was one of uh one of many um yeah one of of many of uh Cookman's collaborators um and so i sort of knew at that point in time that the project would hopefully expand Um, and it was really uh it was such it was such wonderful timing i think right around that um period it was when uh liz called me at work um and uh and um yeah it was just an amazing phone call because she just basically said i'm also um working on functional fashions um and um you know we are so our collaboration sort of started in the archive um and there were um, so I think some of the other archivists, too, were sort of saying, like, oh, you, there are two people who must be working together because they're looking at the exact same really specific sources. Um, so, yeah, I yeah. think,
1: yeah, I think the funny thing, too, is, is, like, Natalie is um, very precise and, like, such an academic and a researcher. And, like, me, like, I, like, am a terrible student. Like, I could never go back to school. I don't even know how to research, right? So I'm, like, flailing about. Um, and it's just it's funny like that there's these sort of two kind of vastly different approaches that have gone into this and i think for me because i don't look at it from this kind of academic um framework like it it, to me it feels like a murder mystery like i I, I almost like want to create like a a a podcast or a documentary called where are the functional fashions right that talks about right not just you know where where are these garments? right because it is a mystery but also you know this idea of functional fashions and and in this first person language and all the dynamics that play into it that i think allow them to stay missing i think is so vitally important um but yeah i think the thing that really besides natalie the thing that really keeps me going in this is i'm con- and i again i'm not a researcher so like i don't understand the, the dynamics at play but just my non-research logic like i'm convinced that these archives exist somewhere in their entirety because they're not showing up anywhere. Like how can a whole archive go missing when Helen's earlier work didn't go missing? And so it's just like, it's like when are we gonna find the Holy Grail? Like is just, you know, it's some, it, I'm convinced it has to be somewhere.
0: Yeah. It's in someone's basement or something and you're just waiting for them to emerge and say, oh, I've had it the whole time. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then like, it'll be like dusty and we like blow it off and then like the the, the lid creaks open and like, yeah. And then there's like, like angels start singing.
2: <laughs>
0: I can't wait. <laughs> Hopefully this podcast will help you find that person out there and know who this archive is. You never know. Yeah. Uh, but I I can't make it to Milwaukee in person to see this thing. So can you tell me about some of the objects on display? I mean, what's it like to go through this exhibit?
2: Yeah, um, I think, well, uh, maybe the first thing that um, individuals would see um, is this large, uh, image, um, of a model wearing, um, wearing one of Helen Cookman's suits and he's holding, uh, he's using crutches in the image, but it's this very striking black and white photo, um, of a model, um, who, um, is, uh, is, is quite, dashing, I would say. <laughs> um, and he uh, sort of has his head turned to the side and um, so we can see the profile of his face. Um, and he's wearing um, a suit that's called um, a shortcut suit. That was sort of the playful name that they had, had come up with um, for it. And the photo I think was from 1958 um, and the model's name was Cy Perkins. Um, we actually know quite a lot about him. He was a model um, for for a little while um, and he is also a model uh, um, for pieces uh, in the um, in the functional fashions uh, for the physically handicapped book um, uh, and the shortcut suit um, they essentially created um, a, a suit with um, with a shorter jacket for men for wheelchair users in order to be able to um, sit down and for the um, for the fa- uh, fabric extra fabric not to be bunch- bunched up uncomfortably, um, which is again one of these um, sort of construction solutions that we would recognize today as being part of um, what's now um, more uh, mainstreamly called adaptive clothing. Um, and so that's sort of the first image um, that individuals see. And the model Cy Perkins is kind of looking at an Eames splint on the wall. Um, and so the, um, the Charles and Ray Eames um, leg splint was actually displayed in the, um, in the galleries uh, and we sort of borrowed it and then reframed it in this, uh, in this installation. Um, which I liked a lot because it's that object I think is often thought of as an important um, piece in design history as it is in terms of like molded um, plywood. Um, but it's uh, so in some cases, it's original intent. gets a little bit lost in in that um, design narrative. Um because it was originally used as, um, a kind of stabilizer for, um, for veterans legs, um, in, in World War II. Um, and Cy Perkins, the model we know was, um, was in World War II and served, um, but, uh, I don't think that, um, he was necessarily injured, um, but he was certainly part of the age group at that point in time of, of individuals who were coming back. Um and we wanted to use the Eames splint as a way of um of kind of calling out the the history of um of rehabilitation mm-hmm. in the United States. Um and below the Eames splint um is a case, uh, a document case, um, and right below the, the splint is um Howard Rusk's book, Living with a Disability. Um, and it, it's turned to a page that has um, some of the self-help designs uh, in it which is um, the shop that um, Muriel Zimmerman created uh, or ran at the Institute where um, where patients would would um, think through and, and create their own um, their own designs um, and and um, There's a lot of um, really interesting graphic design in that book in terms of um, laying out a lot of these um, sort of utensils and implements and various kind of gadgets. Um, And then um, the rest of the document case uh, sort of looks at um, a lot of the pieces that we were able to find um, both borrowing from institutions and, to be honest, a number of pieces that we found on eBay. so like the photograph of Cy Perkins, um, for example, is something that um, I purchased on eBay. Um, and so uh, um, as Liz said, we're still trying to um, amass this uh, or you know, find pieces and then um, uh, bring them together once again that have um, you know, um, gone their separate ways over, the, um, over a long fairly long period of time. So um, the rest of the case uh, is um, some of Helen Cookman's patents um, that that she filed for. There was a 1960 patent, uh, Trousers for a Handicapped Person, which is that design um, that I mentioned earlier, where there are the zippers going down each trouser leg and then the interior belt, which was the basis for... Um, her last collaboration before she passed away um, with Levi's, uh, the Levi's Functional Fashions jeans. Um, And so next to that patent, we have a uh, Levi's Letter magazine which was almost like their internal company magazine from 1975 announcing the release of of these jeans. Um, And then we also have um, the the um, mail order pamphlet of Cookman's designs um, from the Functional Fashions line, um, which uh, which we borrowed from another museum. Um, and I would say that too. The overall design of the installation is um, the design language is taken from the Functional Fashions for the Physically Handicapped book. Um, it's it has really wonderful um, illustrations in it, and the the typography is really fantastic, um, and so we were. It was very easy to kind of take inspiration from from that. Um, and then, if visitors turned around from from that document case, then they could um, look at a uh, a number of garments that are um, facing the um, the document case. And so there are three. Um, there are three uh, ensembles in the um, in the display, and they kind of span the um, the functional fashions timeline. Um, there's an early uh, 1957 Bonnie Cashin piece that um, was not actually designed for um, the functional fashions line, but it was part of um, this series of. Of garments that functional fashions would identify as being already functional for our users, um, and so it's this really elegant um, mohair skirt, uh, and um, uh, and it has a matching scarf, um, and it's uh, a variety of different colors in, in plaid, um, and it's really it's really really striking, um, and what um, the what she did was that um she used um these kind of clips that are um usually referred to as like industrial hardware in order to hitch up the front of the skirt so that um users wouldn't have to pull up their skirt and um and then the uh the middle of um, uh, so next to the Bonnie Cashin piece is um, one of the Florence Eisman dresses uh, that we had on, um, on display um, at the, in the Florence Eisman exhibit. Um, and uh, that's an interesting piece. It's, it's really um, an A-line dress uh, that, um, that just has one button on each shoulder. Um, to make it easier for children to um, to dress and undress themselves, and that piece was created in 1963, um, right around the time when um, so many discussions were happening around polio in the United States. Um, and so uh, the Bonnie Cashin piece is really about mobility, um, and then the um, the uh, Florence Eisman piece is about um, is about uh, children, children's wear and polio um, and uh, the A-line for that Florence Eisman piece the A-line dress was considered an adoptive feature at that point in time because um, it didn't have a waist so, uh, so in, um, children could put the dress on and take it off more easily and the quality of the fabric was really high and could be more easily washed um, and then the last piece um, is from the 70s. Uh, it's a Vera Maxwell dress um, that was called a speed suit. Um, and it was made of lycra. Um, and uh, it that one is interesting because the lycra was being used to take away all fastenings that you could basically slip it on over your head. And then you wouldn't have to deal with any buttons or anything. Um, and there were, I think, in the functional fashions line, there were a lot of different um, ways that they tried to think of getting rid of fastenings um using uh, much longer zippers instead or um uh or just um using uh velcro which was invented right around that period of time too um that they called pressure tape and there are some really interesting videos where um a lot of uh, um individuals had to sort of explain that like the ripping sounds that you hear from this pressure tape is, is, is okay. Like that's what you're meant, that's what it's meant to do. Um, but so with this Vera Maxwell dress, um, it, uh, the way that the designer Vera Maxwell thought of it was as being really useful for individuals with arthritis. Um, and Vera Maxwell, I just re- I really wanted to include a piece of hers um, in the in the display because um, she was such a longtime contributor to the Functional Fashions line. And one of her pieces is just um, really incredible. I haven't found um, an example of this uh, in real life yet, but um, she designed what was called a rugby suit um, in, in uh, the early 1960s. Um, that was uh, this, um, this jacket with, uh, with a Velcro closure. Um, for for women. Um, and then it had a matching longer skirt, as well as um, what they called a, a lap robe or a wheelchair robe. Um, and everything was lined with, um, with fur. And I think that it was um, black seal fur. Um, so it was, uh, it would have been very, very fancy. <laughs> um, and uh, so I really, I, w- I wanted to include something with um, with Vera Maxwell, because she was such an important uh, contributor to the line. But it ended up working out that we had um, the three garments represent sort of the 10 year, or 20 year span of piece from the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, yeah, and that's what, one thing that I really find fascinating about the line is that it, um, as historians, we can kind of track the um, change over that 20 year span of disability culture in, in the United States.
1: Yeah, I think like one of the things that feels so important to me, and 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 I sort of can't praise Natalie enough for this, is I feel like this exhibit um, actually tells a story where, and especially in the United States right now, where other disability exhibits are becoming the story, which has been a source of great distress for me. Um, you know, you could point to Cooper Hewitt's accessibility where, um, you know, you could actually go through the exhibit and not even know that disabled people exist. And I think, really, like, in some ways, Natalie managed to kind of make a couple of statements. One of the main statements is, um, if you so, um, is this in the, it's in the exhibit as well, I think, but it's on the, the blog post about it. Natalie says that um, we don't know how, how Helen identified. Was she person first? Was she identity first? And so uh, instead, what the exhibit does is it takes on the identity of the collaborators. And so it actually uses um, identity first language, because that was, as a key collaborator, that's how I identified. And so um, for me, it, it, the exhibit just makes me really hopeful that there are going to be opportunities and ways to do things in large scale institutions um, moving forward that are more complex um, and, um, and tell really specific stories and open the door for much larger conversations.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I forgot to say um, that there's also, a, um, there are a couple of digital components of the show. Um, the functional fashions for the physically handicapped book is is there on display in the document case, but then um, on an iPad, uh, visitors can sort of, um, can flip through the digitized version of it, um, which I really, I'm so happy that, that we could do that because I think what you get a sense of is that um, 80 pages is quite long, uh, and the specificity of the book is really impressive, especially as they get into later chapters of what fabrics they're choosing and, um, how much like textile science goes into this. It was really, really interesting to me. Um, and then there is also a television special, um, that shows, uh, individuals, uh, showing off all of these different, um, uh, construction features that were, um, that made the garments accessible. So you can actually, you can sort of see what, um, some of the other, um, functional fashions garments look like on bodies and, and how, um, individuals were sort of explaining them to a wider audience.
0: Mm, That's really interesting. Another issue that I wanted to ask the two of you about is accessibility. So um, how did you design this exhibit so that it was for everybody? Or is that even the right way of thinking about your work and about spaces like this, right? Um, And then following up from that, I'm also curious about what the reaction or the response to this exhibit has been in your communities.
2: Um, I think one um, important part was certainly what Liz said about uh, choosing to use identity first language Um, and that resulted in a lot of interesting conversations with the um, with the museum itself. Um, I'm very grateful that they were receptive um, to us doing that because um, in their uh, sort of guidelines for um, museum language or the museum voice um, then uh, I think that um, they've um, been trained to, to, um, to use person first as sort of the most neutral or accessible, or not accessible, but um, uh, yeah, the most neutral, um, the most neutral language. So, um, you know, we, we had lots of conversations with, um, uh, between Liz and I, and then also with um, Bess Williamson, the um, disability design historian um, down at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, about um, what a identity first exhibit might look like and might sound like, um, and uh, so um, that I think was um, it was just uh, a really wonderful. Um, it felt like an experiment to to think through, um, and uh, and and I and we were I I think we were quite um, happy with the. Uh, with the reception um, that 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 um, uh, that that received, um, I think uh, at least a number of people online were excited about um, excited about this and um, and how that really changes the tone and of, of and the feeling of the exhibit. Um, and I think uh, that even though collaboration is becoming more um, more mainstream in, in curatorial practice, Um, uh, I think that a lot of people reacted well to, um, to the collaboration that Liz and I, um, uh, entered into in order to create the Functional Fashions exhibit, um, and that, um, in particular that Liz was brought in as, um, I, you know, I hope as, as an equal collaborator. Um, as opposed to just um, bringing in someone as a voice to say like, okay, yes, check, this is all, you know, this is all makes sense, and it's neutral, and I, as someone from a disability community, says that this is okay.
1: Mm. Yeah, Um, and I sort of, so one of the key phrases you said, Caroline, um, is this idea of make it for everybody, Um, and it's actually something that I really struggle with, because literally the, the notion that something is for everybody is oftentimes a thing that creates disability. And so there was at no point when Natalie and I were going through this process that I ever wanted it to be for everybody. Instead of making something for a, a subset of people, trying we're trying to reach a subset of people, right? Like, we're trying to get you and, and your listeners interested. Like, that's what's important to us. And so... You know i I can imagine that there are people that kind of wander by this exhibit, and it doesn 't have much of an impact on them um, and maybe it 's not supposed to um, but then again you know i, I don 't necessarily know that Helen was trying to make things for everybody as well, and so you know in some ways this idea of for everybody it becomes sort of um, virtue signaling or code for disability in a way that I find to be really destructive and, and I hope in some ways that doing this the way that Natalie and I are doing this, that we can push back on that a little bit. Um,
0: so. Thank you. That's a really important corrective. And I so appreciate that.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the most I can say is this is really, really important to me and it's really important to Natalie and, you know, maybe might become really important to a few other people. And like, that's, that's literally like all that matters to me.
0: Yeah. Do you want to say more about that? I mean, Maybe, is this a question about sort of the problems with the universal design in general? Yeah, you
1: know, I, um, uh, at the Disabled List, we approach um, disability and design from a cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, What we oftentimes say is that it's the defining of the problem that is actually the problem. Um, And so what happens is we have all these misnomers and these sort of phrases that we can sort of espouse that make people feel really good um but what those phrases I think ultimately do is they serve to prevent people from thinking more deeply about this stuff and um right like I I think about what is my um what's the thing that I get hung up on in all of this it is that moment that Rusk approached Virginia Pope and Virginia thought of Helen right like there is so much to that, right? It is so rich in um, in a, a a disability culture of that time, and of um, of sort of the beliefs at the time of of the knowledge that disabled stakeholders had, um, and just in that one, like I, you know, I get lost in that. Like, and and so you know, I I think we exist in this space where you say designed for one and everybody benefits, you erase the disabled person, but through all of it, you, you never get to delve more complexly in it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so for me, I just, um, I don't want um, what Helen did, what she represents, but also the curatorial work that Natalie's doing, like, I don't want that to get simplified. And by saying something like design for all, or that we're trying to reach everybody, mm-hmm. um, that's gonna, that's the thing that we risk happening. and I it would be a mistake. It's, yeah. I think it's It's the mistake that every other exhibit has made. Um, and um, it's just, we have this little, there's, it's just a little niche space in the world. It's this little teeny tiny spot that this woman uh, crammed her way into. And, you know, through her, um, maybe we can do something a little differently. Like that's all, that's all this is.
0: Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. Um- yeah, let's follow up on that. Actually, tell me about did when you were collaborating on this. Like, did you have an audience in mind? And if so, tell me more about that audience.
1: I mean, mine was Bess, right? Like, yeah. all
0: I like all I want is for Bess to just
1: be like, you know, you know, good work, right? Like, that's you know, or or Amy Hamray or Alice Wong, right? Like, um, my audience is other individuals who are engaging rigorously in this space Um, and I just want to contribute my part right Um, but that's what building a culture is Um, and so um, yeah and and inside to that my audience is whoever is hoarding Helen's archives like how do I find how does you know how do Natalie and I get in front of that person Um, other than that like I didn't I didn't think much of it what Mm -hmm. about you
2: Nat? I'm thinking back to a conversation that you and I had, Liz. Um, I think when I was initially talking to you about my interest in in working in this realm of um, disability studies and and histories of of disability, and and I remember you saying that um, that make sure that your work is always speaking to a disabled audience, and that um, that the mistake that um, scholars who are working in this space make um, is that they assume that they are speaking to an able-bodied audience. Um, And so I think that that's been really important advice um, for this project and then um, the approach to my work more broadly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's um, the website that um, Alex Haygard and I created called Critical Access um, it's just, it's, um, uh, we just upload, uh, disability, like ads that feature disability representation. And, and really the thing that we've honed in on is there really has yet to be an advertisement that uses disability representation that actually views disabled people as its key audience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so it's, you know, it's an unanswered question. Um, how is something experienced when the intended audience is disabled? You know, I think we can, um, in a more mainstream space, right, like the Milwaukee Art Museum, um, and I think Natalie got to play around with that a little bit. Um, and you know, I just want more. I want the next and the next, and I want it, you know, in museums and you know on TV and you know wherever it is. Um, but what does it mean to engage delightfully with something, not just to have something in disability uh, positioned as a fix to a problem, right? Like. Um, yeah, I just um, knowing more about Helen on sort of the, the scale that uh, the, the way that we kind of view things now doesn't actually fix anything, but for me, it fixes everything, right? Um, but it's not that sort of problem solution scenario that we've become uh, so accustomed to.
0: Mm, yeah, and getting back to the language that you used earlier of like disability as a creative practice disability hack, you know, as a site of hacking and stuff like that. Tell me more about where this is going next. Do you have further plans for the exhibit, uh, more exhibits like this, you know, sharing new curatorial ideas with people? Where where are you going next? Um,
2: Well, I'm... Pretty sure that the exhibit has been extended, um, which is um, a nice outcome. I am uh, almost positive that it's um, that it's been extended until uh, June, which is great. Um, but I would really love uh, f- to at least maybe create um, a website or um, to uh, to continue to um, find places in order to. Uh, recollect um, or bring together this, um, this archive um, after it's uh, been separated. Um, for me, at least personally, I think it would be nice to utilize a platform like a website in order to, um, to make public a lot of the sources that we've already digitized, um, like the, um, the, the video that is on display in the Functional Fashions exhibit. Um, was part of this four, uh, four-part series um, from a, a television show called Today's Homemaker. And um, it was uh, called, I think, Clothes for the Handicapped. Um, and there are these great um, television episodes from the 1960s that, um, you know, they're just on my computer right now. And hundreds of newspaper articles about functional fashions. Um, uh, as well as all of the research that, um, that we've, uh, already written. Um, and, um, the, you know, Liz and I were part of a panel at the Milwaukee Art Museum with Bess Williamson that, um, that is online, um, with, uh, with accurate subtitles and everything. So I think that there's, um, I think the next step for me is to find a place where um, just all of this, all of these sources can be made public um, a- in order for it to be a resource uh, for other people as well. I would love um, for it to continue to be generative um, for, for other um, individuals and scholars alike.
1: Yeah, I think um, for me, sort of a few things. Um, First, I think that the work that sort of Helen has led Natalie into in terms of home economics and these homemakers, like, and I keep pushing Natalie into this, and one day she's going to relent, is I'm like, you do realize, like, what you're actually talking about is, like, a pre-STEM, right? This is what women were doing before STEM, and if I think if we can sort of view it that way in terms of society, like, I think that Natalie's work can be really, really impactful. And so, you know i'm just excited for natalie to continue digging like just just finds just the most amazing stuff and um is really careful with it um for me you know um i'm i'm desperate to to find these archives i you know it's it's going to be a dream for natalie and i that you know if if they if they show up right like all the things that we can do with them um and in, until that happens and maybe um the finding the archives will be a result of this is the work that Natalie described and, you know, in creating a website and in starting to have some of these more complex conversations through various forms of media. Um, And then, you know, for me, like, it's just, um, again, kind of like living forward with this thing that Helen really gifted me, which is an opportunity to tell things in a more complex way. And what are different outlets that I can do that? Mm. Um, And it's just, I mean, it's so fascinating. Like Natalie and I came into this space, like, with sort of two completely different desires. And I think we still very much maintain that. We're both doing vastly different things. And I think um, that the result of it is something really quite profound. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, I just, I I, I know this will continue on, um, you know, and, and maybe one day there'll be that sort of, that big kind of shining moment.
2: Yeah. And I, what I like so much about what you said here too. Um, I've been thinking about how um, how uh, Helen Cookman and her collaborators created a, a model for collaboration that um, that you and I have uh, have um, can followed in, in many ways. Um, and at a time where I think a lot of um, people in museum work are thinking about equitable collaboration and um, and uh, thinking about curatorial authority and how um, that a lot of that model is is really changing. Um, it uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that their collaboration has really been um, so impactful to learn about and be inspired by. Um. Mm-hmm.
0: I I want to stretch this into actually the present, not just in the curatorial world, but in the fashion and or design worlds. So what do you two see as going on right now in the world in terms of disability and fashion or disability and design? Um, Are we going in the right direction? Where is there still work to do? Talk me through some of your thoughts on this.
1: I feel like Bess actually has a really good answer for this that I can't, I'm not gonna get right, so I'm not, I'm not gonna give Bess's answer. Okay, um, I just, look, I find it, I find it really, it's, um, the space is just really kind of frustrating right now. The, 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 the one of the, the key things that's happening and one of the things we didn't get into is that anybody in fashion right now that has um, tried to enter the market through disability does so through children, right? So it started out with Tommy Hilfiger, And it was zappos and it was target right they all enter the market through children and when you think about any other industry right nobody enters the market through children it's a terrible you know business decision and so for that reason these lines are faltering Um, and so when you if you go back and you sort of look throughout history and and you say like okay well what are the what are the brands that actually did not perpetuate this sort of infantilization And the only one that you can point to is, is Helen Cookman and, and her work. And so, you know, um, and I look at how respected she was. Right. And, um, and where, like who the collaborators were and where the clothes wound up in New York fashion week. Um, and I actually, I think that Helen and and through Helen Virginia Pope created a model for how brands need to be, um, doing disability right now especially in fashion um and uh it just it hasn't happened
2: yet um well now i'm just thinking about um i guess uh some of the um some of the projects that uh happened um in in britain like i think alexander mcqueen was an editor of the i no, it was sorry, it was Dazed and Confused magazine that um, was all about um, disability and disability fashion, um, which I think was that, I'm pretty sure that came out in the ni- thousands or 90s, early thousands or 90s. Um, and um, uh, I, but I, so I think that there's been um, disability in fashion, but um, in A kind of couture moment where there's um there are pieces that are um that are highly uh aestheticized um where like the uh disabled body is also really highly aestheticized um and but um i think i was just thinking about this because i read um Garland Thompson's work on the, um, politics of staring. And she uses that as an example of basically like an exoticizing or alienating gaze that, um, viewers enter into when they see something like that. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think it's existed in certain spaces, like a couture space or a children's wear space. Um, but that some of those, um, also, aren't really talking to each other. Um, so somebody might be aware of like one project, but they might not be aware of of another. And mm-hmm. and because of, I think that this is all part of too, like the um, the, the erasure of history that we've been talking about. Um, that 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 also leads to this kind of lack of rigor in in design. Um, so, I think yeah, that's my sense is that the that um, that there's really been um, less uh, less rigor in this field in particular um, as a result of some of these um, as as what was um, has been saying like first person language. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I also want to follow up, Liz, with some of these other projects that you've been involved in beyond curation that um, are potentially, you know, helping move in a different direction. Right. Yeah. And you've mentioned the critical axis. Yeah. yeah. And you're also the founder of the Disabled List and you also yeah. initiated something called the With Fellowship. So can you share with our audience what some of these different initiatives are? And I imagine there are some folks in our audience who would actually potentially like to be involved in some of this. So tell me everything.
1: You know, I, my feeling is, is a a bit of, if you build it, they will come. And, you know, I just, I think Alex and I, we pour ourselves into this every day Mm -hmm. Um, and just, you know you know hope that you know like kind of our, our 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 people will kind of make make themselves apparent and and it does it happens right we've got natalie and we've got Bess. um so um i'll start with the with fellowship so one of the things was is that i realized that if you google the phrase design for disability you'll see that it yields more than 10 times as many search results as disability design so this idea that we are recipients of design has embedded itself into our language. So I decided that I was gonna create this fellowship called the With Fellowship. And my fundamental belief was, is um, sort of traditionally in fellowships, what happens is, is the goal is to grow and change a person. But my belief was, is if you allow a disabled person to be disabled in the space, they will fundamentally grow and change the space. And that did, to a certain extent, actually really very much prove to be true. But what I realized was, is that, the With Fellowship is a band-aid over a much larger problem that I'm now focused on, and what that is is that there is not much in the way of uh, disability, uh, dis- uh, t- disability studies, critical disability studies curriculum and design schools. And one of the things that I've realized is, is it's actually not just disabled students that are not getting their needs met in design schools. It's also design students that have an interest in disability, but don't even know what disability is. And so it's been my belief that if you can start to create disability studies curriculum, what happens is, is these two, these two student bodies, right? Find each other. Uh, collaborate. And then when they enter the workforce, nobody is thinking that anybody is designing for anybody else. And so I've actually shifted away from the With Fellowship. And I now just fight local design schools, like trying to, to, you know, get them to consider this other way. Um, That's the With Fellowship. Uh, At the Disabled List, we consult with brands. Um, Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it does not. And then, um, and then the and critical access. So, and that is um, again a repository of, basically, at this point, disability and advertising. Um, one of the things I didn't realize when we started doing this, and if you go to the website uh, criticalaccess.axis.org, uh, what you'll experience is um, uh, uh, sort of a, a whole bunch of disability tropes that are then tagged to the various ads, and so. I didn't realize when I started this that Alex and I were creating a database. Um, but once somebody pointed it out to me, you know, we started to get creative. And one of the first things we did was, is we um, went through each of the ads and we counted the amount of words that disabled people spoke. And then what we did was is we went on YouTube and we uh, cataloged and we categorized the comments. And so one of the first things that we learned through this data set is that the, in advertising right now, the more words a disabled person speaks, the less believable the ad is perceived to be. And so we're starting to kind of gain all these insights that we weren't previously aware of. And so, um, you know, we're just, as we can, we're just adding, you know, more and more uh, ads to it. So that's been really powerful. Um, But again, it's all toward this larger mission of um, complexity. Um, Disability representation is not enough. Just disabled people as knowledge holder stakeholders and probably above anything in all of it, I would point to um, it's all about a disabled audience. How do you find a disabled audience? Um, And I think that's my goal in, in all of this.
0: Wow. Thank you. So grateful you're doing this, honestly. And I personally have found the um, visualization that you created on the critical axis of sort of mapping the different disability tropes to be incredibly powerful. And I want to use it as a teaching tool. So just
1: one of the things that we did just to kind of show, and you can do this on your, you can't do it on your phone, but you can do it on your computer to to show how a screen reader um, would read it. If you um, pull the width to about half, um, you'll see it in list form um, so that you can see how oh, it's being read by a screen reader. So that way, you know, it's sort of easier as a teaching tool to describe where, where you can find something.
2: I really
0: appreciate it. And Natalie, I, I haven't had a chance yet to ask you about your PhD work. Um, is your curatorial work kind of directly connected to your PhD work? Have they gone off in different directions? What's what's going on with that? Uh,
2: um. Well, I'm very grateful that you asked, uh, because I'm so thrilled to talk about this. Um, I, uh, I'm just so, I'm so excited to be, um, to be back in school and, uh, the coursework has been really, really wonderful. Um, I came into the PhD with this really specific project of examining the history of dress and disability in the United States. Um, but, uh, my coursework in particular this semester um, I think has been really just mind expanding um, and everything that you hope to get out of um, uh, PhD work. Um, My, uh, I have two courses in particular that are really talking to each other right now. I am in a design history seminar uh, about histories of making and that's really been about sort of um, the body of, uh, the maker in, in really fascinating ways. Um, we read Pamela Smith's work, The Body of the Artisan, um, and, um, and, 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 many others. We were just looking at, um, the arts and crafts movement and sort of some of the, um, the values that get placed on, um, on labor. And, I think um, that that has really, really been speaking to um, history, some of these histories of vocational rehabilitation in the United States and how um, rehabilitation has been, um, or how craft and making has been used in, in rehabilitation. So that's something that I'm really interested in because there's this paradox of, um, of making as, it also has this potential to, um, to really damage the body in interesting ways. Um, like a lot of, um, certainly Pamela Smith's work at least is engaging with the idea of, um, historic master metal workers who, um, are like working constantly and, and really, um, hurting their bodies, and, and Chipstone did a, an interesting show a few years ago um, about thinking through sort of the true cost of um, decorative arts and uh, in museums. These really beautiful objects that you see, um, where um, you know maybe the wood dust that somebody was working with was a carcinogen, or um, a in, in ceramics. Um, uh, certainly in Staffordshire in, in the 1700s the lead glaze that they were using if you were dipping these pieces into the lead glaze then of course you were going to get lead poisoning and the examples um you know go on and on and on but um so i think that i'm i'm really interested in that tension um between um craft as as uh, a practice of rehabilitation and um and that something can that can also you know potentially harm harm your body um, and in part because there are so many discussions around the bar- the body of the maker, the body of, of the artisan, um, around like embodied knowledge or tacit knowledge of making. That I think, um, and also around the senses too, like that. There's so much discussion around that, um, and that that feels really ripe for a disability studies intervention. Um, so that's sort of where my my mind is at. Uh, right now, um, but I'm also taking this great course um, called Discourses of Disability pre 1800 with um, Elizabeth Bearden, uh, and that's that's an English class. Um, but that's really been also like giving me the kind of theoretical framework in disability studies that I that I really felt like I needed. Um, and so um, I think I, I'm certainly still really interested in. Um, in disability interests, um, but that um, that conversation I think is now being inflected with some of these other ideas. Um, in part because the um, that something that was sort of functional fashions adjacent was um, was this uh, vocational rehabilitation program um, that paired uh, clothing designers, um, some of whom were functional fashions collaborators. With organizations like Lighthouse for the Blind, um, where the designers essentially created um, patterns for individuals in those organizations to make and sell as part of an employment, um, uh, as part uh, yeah as part of a project that would um, theoretically increase their um, their uh, chances of employment. So. Um, Sorry, that was kind of a rambling answer. Yeah,
0: not at but. all. <laughs> That's good. You're in your PhD and you're taking coursework, so this is exactly right. This is business of ideas percolating and inspiration striking in all areas and trying to figure out how you're going to narrow it down. So I think it's brilliant.
2: Well, me too, me too. Yeah, and it, I don't know, I think so, at least some of these conversations are thoughts for me were sparked in this um, Discourses of Disability class that. Um, We started in in antiquity, which is, you know, like (laughs) way, way (laughs) earlier than I've been working. Usually I'm sort of like a 1700s onwards, uh, at least knowledge base in terms of material culture and decorative arts. Um, But um, one of the figures that we were looking at was um, the Greek god Hephaestus as being um, this individual with uh, mobility impairment. is uh, or who was written about that way certainly um and uh he is the metalsmith to the gods um and so he's this master maker and he creates all of these different castings that are uh that also come to life as his aids um so anyways there's <laughs> just a lot there in terms of makers and makers bodies and disability and um, that I'm sort of excited to get into
0: and since we this is a great bridge actually we've just been talking about education and the incredible generative work that a good course can do in the world and Liz you said that you spend a lot of time talking to design schools and trying to get them to understand you know disability of the disability community and I'm wondering so uh, you've both been involved in education and thinking about you know training the next generation of, of people coming through these um, post-secondary programs so what should the post-secondary world be doing differently when it comes to disability? You know, If there's something that's going well, that's also something I'd love for you to mention, but I, because education is such a powerful tool for change, how can we use it in a way that is, I don't know, moving in the right direction? Um,
1: I think like this is a conversation that can be a little bit difficult for me to kind of delve into simply for the fact that I've never taken a design course and I've never taken a disability studies course. Mm-hmm. Um and so like there there's a way in which I feel um, it would be unfair of me to kind of really comment, but um i I will say this much increasingly, I will get design teachers who reach out to me saying that they're going to be teaching um, a design class on disability, um, and they very clearly have no knowledge uh, or or sort of comprehensive understanding of disability um, and, like, the thing that I say to them is, is that as a designer, part of your, what you learn in education is that design requires continuing education.
2: Mm-hmm. Yet
1: somehow when it comes to disability, right, you think you just know. Um, but the things that you think you know are um, actually the, probably the things that you shouldn't be teaching, right, because uh, they're filled with bias and stigma and et cetera. Uh, and so I end up more often than not begging these teachers not to teach these classes. Um, and so for me, what it comes down to is if I'm spending my time begging people to not teach disability, like I I need to be doing something on the other side. And so, th- you know, that's really where I'm trying increasingly to focus. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, I think one thing that's been sort of interesting to me is looking at um, if you just sort of Google disability and then a university's name um, to see uh, if disability studies as a um, as a field of study comes up um, because I think more often than not, um, in the university setting, it feels like disability is so heavily associated with access um, and uh, for the, you know, for students and faculty, which I think, of course, it's very, really, really important um, that, that, that that is addressed. And, um, you know, the student body uh, should feel, um, as well as teachers, really, really um, that, that they belong and that the university um, uh, is on their side in terms of, um, making, uh, making learning, um, available for everybody. But I think for me, it's been so important to think about, um, disability culture and disability culture as having history. Um, and, and as, uh, Liz was saying, sort of this creative approach to, to disability. Um, so I think what I would really like to see is um, that those two things are either treated in tandem um, or that, that they're just more connected and that the disability studies perspective is as is, is being elevated, that it's not just sort of a complaint, that, that disability doesn't get brought up in school as a form of um, like measures of compliance, um, that, it, that it's really treated as a field of study um and for, well certainly for me um what's been so gratifying at um at, at the University of Wisconsin Madison is that a lot of um my professors who are teaching disability studies are themselves disabled um and so can really um i think but i think for me what's important about that too is the um the precedents that the university is setting in terms of hiring uh, mm. yeah. individuals uh, with um with that perspective. Um, So I think those um things at least um for me is what's been on my mind.
1: Um we were at Natalie and Bess and uh Sandy and I were at dinner the other night and I think you prompted this Natalie. Uh, It was this conversation about sort of Googling your school and disability. So I went I went to school for TV production. So nothing Mm -hmm. remotely related to any of this. Uh, I went to Ohio University And I, so I Googled Ohio University disability studies is what I Googled. And uh, the first thing that came up was student disability services. And the second thing that came up was the Ohio State University um, disability studies curriculum. And so I just think it's a really enlightening thing to do now. Like it just, it it really left its impression on me that if you Google any school and disability studies, like what is the likelihood Like how often is it that the services come up and not the curriculum? Mm -hmm. Um, It would be sort of, that would be an interesting thing to even look into. I mean, all all this stuff is so fascinating.
0: It, It has been absolutely extraordinary to talk to you. Thank you both so much for your time, for your intellectual generosity, um, for sharing your stories and telling me all about this incredible exhibit that I'm sorry I won't get to see in person. And I'm so, so excited for all the work that you two are doing. So thank you. Thank you. Just thank you so much
1: for, for having us. Like Honestly, like, I was so excited about this. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, I just I appreciate you um, uh, in your curiosity about what, what Natalie and
2: I are trying to do. Yeah. Thank you so much, Caroline.
0: Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.